Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. How we doing, folks? Good to see you on this great Sunday morning. Welcome to those of you as well who are joining us online from wherever you are, from our place to your living room. Welcome in the name of Jesus. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, just like we have been uh, every Sunday for the past several weeks in a series called Blessed redefining, really actually going back to Jesus' original definition of the, the, the term blessed, the way that we have sometimes twisted that, the way any normal person in times of prosperity and happiness might be inter- tempted to interpret this term blessed, but all the things that we associate with blessing, um, when they get compromised, when they are at threat of being taken away from us, we're being taught in this passage afresh that there's a state of being that belongs to us that can never be taken away no matter what happens to us. And that that blessedness, that blessed state is characterized by some hard stuff. It's characterized by poverty of spirit. It's characterized by meekness. It's characterized by mourning. It's characterized by mercy. It's characterized by desire for righteousness and by purity of heart. And this morning we look at Matthew 5, 9 and we see one other very hopeful and simultaneously very, very difficult, particularly given the context in which you and I now find ourselves context. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Boy, do we need this right now. Amen? Do we not need people to make peace? And some of you may already have your defense mechanisms up right from the start of this message, and you're thinking, Pastor, how on earth do we do it? How does that happen? I mean, is it even possible given the environment that we now live in? But moreover, what exactly does it mean to be a peacemaker? Well, in order to get at that definition, I want you to think about another one. I want you to think about the definition of a visionary. Most, of, uh, most, most leadership gurus, leaders of, of all stripes understand a visionary to be this, a person who's able to perceive the comparison between what is and what ought to be combined with the ability to close the gap between those two. I know what is, I know what ought to be, my role as a leader is not just to talk about what ought to be, and it's certainly not to act as though what is is what ought to be. My job is to do the hard thing, and that hard thing is closing that gap. So I want you to think about that particular job description within the confines of this term, peacemaker. A peacemaker has the ability to look at conflict and see a preferred future with preferred relationships. These relationships are not what they should be. This nation is not what it should be. This particular church or that particular family environment is not what it should be. This is what it should be. And then they run toward that gap, and they take personal responsibility for closing it. You hear that? Peacemaking isn't about winning. It's about closing a gap. Let me ask you a real hard question in a time like ours. When you experience conflict, when you find yourself within conflict, what is your goal? Is it to win an argument or win a person? Which are you trying to do? Jesus calls us to something very specific here, 
And he says that peacemakers are those who seek wholeness in the lives of others. That's what peace is, by the way. It's not detente. We had that during the Cold War. Some of you remember the Cold War, don't you? Not a shot was fired in any major battle. Not one drop of blood was spilled. But I think any of us who lived during that time would also agree that was not a peaceful time. When you go, okay, we still hate each other's guts. We're just going to refrain from killing each other for the moment. That ain't peace. That's not. What Jesus is calling for us to make is the same thing that would would be wished by one of his fellow Jews toward another fellow Jew. When a Jew wished another Jew shalom in the ancient world, or for that matter, when our Jewish friends do the same thing today, they're wishing for a lot more than merely the absence of conflict. They're, they're, they're asking that all of your life would be whole, that everything about you would be made complete. I want that for you more than anything else in the world. And so that's who Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. So so now we've got to ask another question. What does it mean to make that kind of peace? And I think some moments of, some, just some points of clarity are probably in order here. Number one, peacemaking is not pacifism. Peacemaking does not mean that Christians are always against every conflict, including warfare, all the time. It's not a refusal to ever fight. It's not a refusal to all, or an attempt to always defend yourself. Number two, peacemaking is not conflict avoidance. See, if you need to make peace, you can't make peace by staying away from the conflict. By definition, peacemaking means you step into the conflict. Now, for those of you who are excited about that and love a good fight, let me remind you, it matters how you step into it. And it matters very much that in stepping into the conflict, you don't step in, well, something else. Make sure that you're doing this in the right way. And we're going to talk about what that means over the course of the next few minutes together. Thirdly, peacemaking does not mean taking the path of least resistance. Your first priority is not to find the easiest way out for yourself. And if you look at a lot of even some of the highest vitriolic conflict that you see today, whether it's on news media, social media, or even in some of your own interpersonal relationships, I will guarantee you it is because someone thought a mic drop moment, a political slogan, or some other easy way path out of the conflict was the way for them to escape the conflict. And guess what it gave them? More conflict. That's all it did. Jeremiah called out leaders, false leaders in his own day. In this way, he says in Jeremiah 6, 14, they have healed the wound of my people lightly. You know what that means? That's a metaphor. It's a Hebrew metaphor, not at all unlike us saying, they're putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. How do they do that? By saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. You got to remember, throughout the Beatitudes, Jesus has been emphasizing paradox, You remember G.K. Chesterton's definition of paradox? Truth standing on its head, shouting for attention. From a distance, it doesn't look like it makes any sense at all. But the closer you get and the more you're willing to listen, the more harmonious what is being said to you becomes. Truth standing on its head, shouting for attention. And this this whole passage of Scripture is full of paradox that, that you are only blessed if you admit your spiritual poverty. That's how you inherit everything. You're only blessed if you're, if you're willing not just to stand at the precipice of sadness and mourning and, and do as little as possible, but to actually plumb the depths of the mourning experience. That's the only way to comfort. That the unassuming, the meek, 
They're the ones that inherit everything, not those who presume that they have a right to everything. That it is those who are spiritually hungry who will be filled. And right here in verse 9, we find the most striking paradox of all. Peacemakers are not passive. Peacemakers are fighters. But they know what to fight for. They know how to fight for the right thing. You know, one of my favorite stories from the Old West is the story of a U.S. Marshal named Wyatt Earp. The stories of him in Kansas City and later on in Tombstone, Arizona are are legendary. And of course, a lot of it is just legend and myth and that sort of thing. But it's kind of exciting to to read those stories. But but one of the things that, that few people know about Wyatt Earp is until that infamous gunfight at the OK Corral, he never fired a shot. Never once. He knew when and he knew when not to. But the one thing he always carried on his side was this little piece right here, a Colt 45 caliber peacemaker. How's that for irony? There he was. Here's a guy who took action. He didn't, he didn't just lawlessness was running around terror, terrorizing the citizenry. The man took action. He didn't just talk about peace. He made it. Now, very quickly on the heels of that, let me say something to all you West Virginians out here, because I know how y'all can be, same way your pastor can be sometimes. I know some of you just heard that story, and you're like, yeah, pastor, and I'm ready, right? Ain't nothing funnier than a middle-aged man who would die of a heart attack if he tried to run a mile presuming himself to be a Civil War hero in some armed conflict that he anticipates coming. Listen, It is highly unlikely that you or I are ever going to participate in anything like that. For that matter, even anything like Wyatt Earp faced, all right? So get your delusions of grandeur out of your head about that coming, okay? Some of y'all, you got your basement full of it, and you're not going to be a war hero. The only thing you're doing is annoying people like me because I got to find my bullets somewhere else because you bought them all, all right? So just, just get, get that out of your head, okay? The Wyatt Earp example is not there to reinforce that, that view of what we're talking about. But let me, do, let me tell you why I did tell that story. Because that same level of vigilance is exactly what Jesus is talking about. Look at these passages beginning in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says to the church there, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of of peace. Look at what he says to the church at Rome. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And so serious does the Lord take this that by the hand of his Holy Spirit through his servant Paul, he says the following in Titus 3.10 to anybody who would seek to disrupt that peace. He says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. People who are blessed don't act that way. People who act that way should be subject to church discipline. But people who are blessed are people who fight for the right things, namely the wholeness and the completeness and the well-being of other people, starting with their brothers and sisters in Christ, moving on from there to the rest of the community and the world. And I want you to see this morning four characteristics that Scripture gives us of someone who is a peacemaker. And this is my challenge this morning. I know times are difficult. I know this is going to be a hard message for some of you. Let me encourage you to hold this text up. Hold these characteristics we're going to talk about. Hold them up to your face and to your soul like a mirror. And pray the Holy Spirit to help you conform to the following things. Number one, 
Peacemakers are those who are honest about conflict. They just tell the truth. There's nothing about hiding the truth that's going to make peace. In fact, Max Dupree, that late furniture company executive, put it this way, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. Demonstrate what the real issues are. Don't ignore them. Don't go along to get along. That's not, don't say peace, peace, when there is no peace, like those false prophets in Jeremiah chapter 6. One of my favorite stories about this from the corporate world comes from Alan Mulally, the, the now retired chief executive officer of the Ford Motor Company. He assumed that post in 2006, and, and when he did, he, he had quite the job on his hands. Ford at that point had been drowning in red ink for years, and they had suffered massive financial losses, a declining market share, and he noticed two things when he took that post. That he, that he said, these are going to be major problems that I'm going to have to get over really, really quick. Number one, this may surprise me, there was not in the executive parking lot of the headquarters in Dearborn, Michigan, there was not a single Ford product. He said, well, here's my first problem. They ain't even buying what they're trying to sell. And secondly, board meetings consisted of an all-is-well mentality. Again, we're back to Jeremiah 6. Peace, peace, when there is no Peace. He'd get various division VPs and, and department heads to, to report, and they used a, a green, yellow, red kind of status for the various divisions and departments. Green means all is well, everything's going great. Yellow means, hey, there's some areas here we need to watch because there's some stuff that's not happening the way it should happen. Red means it's time for emergency action because this department's going down, and if it does, it's going to drag the other departments with it. And he was amazed to find in his early days as CEO that the overwhelming percentage of indicators from all of his vice presidents were green in a company that was bleeding to death financially. He, he noticed, furthermore, that every time a VP would stand up and start to actually deal with a problem, he wouldn't see that VP anymore. There was something about the culture of that organization that wanted to squelch that out. And, he, and so he said, I, I've got to do something about this. So slowly but surely, over about the course of the, the next year, Mulally had to make some changes. He, you know what he did? He took the deniers, the controllers, and the keepers of the status quo, and he kicked them out of the boardroom. How's that for peacemaking? Yeah, you, you guys keep talking about all as well, and yet this keeps happening. What are we going to do about this? So he made those changes. He replaced them with truth tellers who were not afraid to face the facts. Within weeks, those charts that were all green turned almost entirely red. You go, well, that's not pleasant. No, it's not. But you have to start with the truth, do you not? And this was the point at which Malala said, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're actually starting to identify some problems. By the time he retired in 2014, Ford was back on top of all three, all of the American uh, automobile manufacturers. They were actually the only major American manufacturer that did not take bailout money from the government when the economy crashed in 2008. He was, it, it, the success was actually so great in just a two-year period, Mulally was appointed by then-President Obama to advise him as a senior advisor on how to bring the car companies back from the precipice. But he had to be honest about the conflict. Now, let's be honest for a minute. How many churches, how many family units, how many people, even when they take stock of their own soul, are exactly like the Ford Motor Company was in 2006? How many times have you heard this? 
Well, we shouldn't talk about that. Not in church, especially. Or that, I've heard that. That's not why I come to church. Well, if you're wondering why there are people who call themselves Christians that still can't let go of that grudge, even though their grandparents held it. If you're wondering why there's still unresolved conflict in churches and organizations or over things that happened years and even decades ago, if you're wondering why every time there's a community in strife, whether it's this recent election or some other thing that's, that's got the public divided and you look inside the churches that are supposed to be ministering to those communities and they are every bit as divided as the communities around them, now you have your answer. It's because we don't talk about it in church when this is exactly what the Lord has commanded us to do. Make peace. Make peace. God does not want that division in your family. God does not want his people refusing to talk to each other. God doesn't want his people who are brothers and sisters putting walls up around certain areas or certain subjects because they're touchy. And God is not interested in false prophets after the pattern of those in Jeremiah 6 saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. God is looking. For men and women of God who will run toward the trouble and conflict, identify it, and be honest about it. Peacemakers are honest about the conflict. But secondly, peacemakers are also willing to endure pain. And this is really important, okay? Because some of you, when I say, we've got to be honest about this. We've got to be truth. And some of you, you're like your pastor. That's that's kind of a, the gift mix that the Holy Spirit has given you. You're a truth teller, and that's good. That's a good thing. But you're also still a sinner who's in the, the process of becoming more like Jesus, and you need to check your spirit at this point of honesty because I fear when I say we're honest about the conflict, if we just stop there, some of you are going to think, oh, yeah, pastor just gave me full license to be a full-on total jack wagon to everybody else. And that's not what I'm saying. Pastor said I could be a jerk because after all, we got to be honest about the conflict. Peacemakers don't just drop a mic and step off stage and leave a mess for everybody else to clean up. Peacemakers, once that honesty has been expressed, they stay and they suffer and they endure great pain. For the benefit of others. Look at these words from James chapter 3. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. When it's all about you and not about other people, this will be the inevitable result. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You know what he's saying there? Selfish ambition, disorder, that's easy. It's easy. Just go on social media sometime. Make a comment in the thread that you know is going to push people's buttons and do it just because you want to push people's buttons. Easiest thing in the world you'll ever do. Takes no courage to do that. None. That's easy. Peacemaking, James here tells us, is one of the hardest things we'll, we'll ever do if we do it right. Because while it requires honesty, it also requires gentleness, which means I care more for the other person than I do about winning an argument. It, it requires reason. 
which means all the confirmation bias in my head. I've got to get rid of that. I've got to be willing to also be impartial. I've got to listen not only to my own experiences. I've got to listen to the lived experiences of another person, especially my, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And most importantly, peacemaking is full of mercy. If you want righteousness, you have to make peace to get it. And this is the process, Jesus tells us, for making peace. Peace is painful. I got a really good friend of mine, and his own testimony as he grew up in the hood, he's African-American, had a few not-so-nice encounters with law enforcement as he was growing up. And after coming to faith in Jesus, he struck up a really quick friendship at this new church he had joined with another man. You ever had a relationship like that, like right from the start? You hadn't even been talking to the other guy like five minutes, and you already know, I really like this guy. Like, you, not even five minutes into the conversation, you, you're still even shaking hands and you're thinking, man, I'm going to be on the golf course, I'm going to be in a tree stand, I'm going to be somewhere with this dude, I like him. He said, that's the kind of connection I made with this guy. Until a couple of weeks later when that same guy, he said, I saw him walk into church in his police officer's uniform and he said, Joel, it triggered me in a way that, that was not good. He said, all of a sudden, all those bad memories came back. Memories of being stopped and not being told why he was stopped. Memories of being cussed at and treated unprofessionally. Memories of being restrained and seated on a sidewalk while they ran a background check. Memories of people who suspected him of things going off a gut instinct and after they found nothing, there's no apology. No sense that he's the reason that they're there. And he felt all that bitterness well up. That badge all by itself completely changed his perception of that other guy. And he said, maybe he's not who I thought he was after all. And he said, Joel, it was at that moment that the Holy Spirit just started nudging at me. Which means he's probably receptive, maybe even more so than me. Because typically when the Holy Spirit does that to me to correct me, he whops me across the back of the head. I don't know about you. Sometimes that has to happen. But this, 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 this friend of mine said, he, the Holy Spirit started to speak. And the Lord said to me, maybe this man's exactly who you think he is. Maybe, in fact, son, that badge is not anything like what you think it is. And maybe you need to make peace. So he walked over to the guy after the church service. He said, hey, I... Uh, I need, to, I need to talk with you. Can we? I know we haven't known each other that long. I really have enjoyed getting to know you. I saw you come in there this morning with your uniform on. I, can we just have an honest conversation? Can I talk plainly to you? Can I just share my story? I'm not going to attack you, but I want you to hear what my experiences have been. And as you can imagine, it, it's, not hard, it, it's not easy for any officer of the law to hear stories like that, but he listened. He listened. Then they got together for a second meeting. You know what that meeting was for? For the officer to give the other guy his story. And you know what got solved in the middle of all that? Like on the national level, you, you know what got solved? Nothing. You know why I'm telling you that? Because I get that question all the time. Pastor, what's this going to fix? Sometimes the objective is not to fix a national problem. Sometimes the objective is just to be obedient because Jesus said so. And because there's another person on the other side of that divide that he's calling you to reconcile with. No, look at the news. They didn't solve any of these national issues, but you know what they did produce? An understanding between the two of them. A friendship 
that still lasts to this day. And a friendship, by the way, that I will tell you when this nation finally is ready for a solution, it'll be relationships like that that will be at the front of the line helping to heal the rift in the wider community. But those kinds of conversations are not easy, are they? So what do we do? We, we avoid them. We deflect. We spout off political slogans like there's some kind of mic drop that's supposed to defeat everybody else or own our opponents and as if the issues are not far more complicated. And the result of that is we just get further and further away from each other. Our friends at One America who've been working with us here on the opioid addiction crisis and continue to do so, they remind us that actually there's some, some brain science behind this that explains what exactly is driving us apart, that we've reached such a point of division in our country that that disagreement engages a primitive part of my brain that will react against you in a way that I would have only reacted a generation or two ago if I were being physically attacked. Did you know that? You say something that I disagree with, the most primitive part of my brain tells me that I need to react to you in the same way that I would if you were coming at me with a weapon. That's why we're in the mess we're in right now. If you don't realize that, one of two things is going to happen when you encounter conflict. Either you're going to dig in in a really unhealthy way or you're going to walk away. But you're not going to make peace so how many of us are willing to have hard conversations? And by the way, I'm not just challenging you to this, that this is the big occupational hazard of a preacher as we, we say, this is what you ought to do. And you're like, nice work, preacher. How do I do it? You haven't gotten to that part yet. Well, keep a look out in your inbox. There's a resource from our friends at Over Zero that's coming your way tomorrow morning. It's a resource, not all of it, it wasn't, it was written by a group of folks, not all of them were followers of Jesus, but I'm going to tell you, I see some good, solid wisdom, including biblical wisdom, in this resource that's coming, that begins by recognizing the worth of the other person that you're in conflict with, that refuses to assume the worst, because that's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, that love does, that listens more than you talk, because Jesus tells us to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. It's just a guide to help you have those conversations in a different way. It's a guide that contains words and phrases that you have never in your life heard in the news media and have rarely seen in social media. But it's how you make peace. You're honest about your conflict. You don't run from it. You are willing to endure pain for the sake of the other individual. That's what peacemakers do. And when they do that, they are emulating the work of Jesus. Did you know that? Sometimes it seems like Christians think we're the only people who have ever been to a place in society where we are right now. But 2,000 years ago, there was a church in Philippi, a major port city in Macedonia of, with, with, with every sort and kind of culture, was growing with all kinds of people with different backgrounds. Some of them had different mother tongues and different identities. And Paul encouraged unity among those people. And he started by doing this. He said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You want to get along together? I know you have different political views. I know you speak different languages. I know you come from different cultures. I know that, I know that, I know because I'm God that 20 centuries from now there's going to be some Christians in America that think there's never been division like this, and that's just because they're historically ignorant. The kind of division you all are looking at right now in the first century 
makes that division 20 centuries coming 20 centuries later pale in comparison. This is how you solve it. This is how you find unity in the body. All of you assume the mind of Christ. And then he describes the mind of Christ by saying, number one, you all should get ready. Some of you are really going to hate this. Just telling you. Jesus gave up rights to things he was entitled to. Number two, Jesus focused on obedience to the Father in his mission. Number three, Jesus was obedient to the point that it cost him his life. Number four, God honored that obedience by raising him from the dead and giving him a name that is above every name. Now, now, what does that have to do with peacemaking? Well, look at what this work of humility accomplished. Colossians chapter 1. You. He's talking to the church at Colossae, but through them to you, to me. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is one of my favorites. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. When you're willing to put other people's needs before your own, when you're willing to incur personal loss and cost in order to have peace, when you're willing to cross lines of culture and perception to understand and identify with another, it is in those moments that you are most like Jesus. In those moments, you emulate in a way the whole world can understand the work of Christ to reconcile us to God and to reconcile us to each other. One of the saddest things I hear Christians say today is, we're, we're just too divided. There's just there's just no hope. I made a little joke a little while ago about you guys stock, some of you stocking up on ammo, but I know there's a psychology around that that's completely unhealthy. I'm sad for you. We're just too divided. Listen to me. The greatest divide that ever existed in all of human history was the divide between you and God. There is no division, no conflict that is happening now or that you could even conjure up in your mind might happen in the future that even comes close. Don't believe me? Listen to the words of Jonathan Edwards from hundreds of years ago describing the state of humanity before redemption. He says, the God who holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some other detestable insect over the fire, detests you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be thrown into the fire. His eyes are too pure than to bear to have you in his sight. How did we get from there to this preacher being able to tell you God loves you unconditionally. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. Jesus made peace. And then he said to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so also do I send you. Jesus made peace. So when you say, well, it's just too deep, we're just too divided. You, you realize that what you're saying is that the gospel can't fix this. That's what you're saying. So you need to just hush and think a minute. 
G.K. Chesterton also said the following. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been, tri- found, it has been found difficult and left untried. You want to live like Jesus did, you will choose the hard road of making peace. Here's the final thing about peacemakers. Their actions reveal their identity. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called passive voice. What's that mean? That means the world is going to look at you and say, sons of God, daughters of God. I'm going to submit to you that the world in general does not say that. Not about about Western Christians anyway. And I think it behooves us to ask why. I really do. I remember being in, in China with my wife in 2010. We were there to, to bring our Gracie home. And right there in the capital city of her province, rather remote area, two and a half million people, which believe it or not, it's kind of a small town in China, but there, there we were. Us and one other couple, a police officer and his wife from, from Indianapolis, Indiana. The only four white people in this whole town. The only four English speakers in this whole town. This is not Beijing. This is not Shanghai. This is not Hong Kong. Nobody spoke our language. We walked into a restaurant, the four of us together, and I saw like, like the McDonald's has, you know, meal number one, meal number two. And I, and I looked at my wife and I said, you can get any of the first three. She said, why can't I get anything else? I said, because that's as high as I can count in Chinese. That's how deep in the woods we were. And as we're sitting there having that meal, this police officer looked at me and eventually, when two dudes are together, this, this question's going to come out, right? So what do you do for a living? And I thought, well, the simplest way to do it, I wasn't actually a pastor of a church at that time. I was running a nonprofit that serviced churches and, and working in missions. But I thought, yeah, I'm not going to get into all that. I'm just going to, I'm, I'm a pastor. Really? What denomination? And I thought, I wonder where this is going. And I said, well, it, it, it's a Baptist denomination. And then he said, Southern Baptist? And I went, Yeah. And I said that because, not because I don't love Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists led me to Jesus. I love them. Southern Baptists ordained me to the ministry. They educated me in their seminaries. Deployed me and trained me to plant churches. I have a lot of love for the SBC. So it wasn't about a love. It was about, I I just kind of knew what was coming. And and so when I honestly said, yeah, he said, oh yeah, y'all are the ones that don't think people ought to drink beer. Like, that's the first thing that came out of his mouth. And by the way, here at Covenant, we don't believe that. So don't get drunk. Watch yourself, okay? But if you're throwing one back at the game this afternoon, nobody's going to say anything to you. I said, yeah, well, that they're, yeah, we, we have some folks that believe that. The majority of them probably do. But that's not really what we're all about. There was a sarcastic side of me that goes, yeah, we also hate women, we hate gay people, we hate, you know, and, and Mickey Mouse. The, the most recent on our hatred list is Mickey Mouse. We actually, I, I do hate Disney, I'll just admit that to you, but not, not because of any moral issue, I just don't like going down there. Ask the average person today out on the street who's not a Christian, has no connection to Christianity, what does it mean to be an evangelical? You know what they're going to tell you? It means to be a Republican. How did that happen? How did that happen exactly? Here's here's my larger point. We are almost always defined by those outside our tribe as what we are against. I don't like that. 
And I'm going to tell you something else. I don't think Jesus likes it. I don't think he's pleased by that. In fact, I think when we stiffen up and thump our chests and talk about how it's just because we're standing for truth, I think it makes him want to throw up. If you don't believe me, I've got a sermon on fundamentalism coming up in January. So just hang with me. All right? I don't think he's pleased with that at all. What is it about us that makes people think like that? Let me, let me just make this real personal. If people were around you for longer than 15 minutes, if people spent 10 minutes perusing your social media page, if they spent five minutes observing how you treat a waiter or a cashier, if they spent two minutes watching you react to someone who says something you disagree with, how would they identify you? If they knew you were a follower of Jesus, would your actions in that moment confirm every suspicion they have or would it confound them? And I know what some of you are thinking right now. Well, pastor, I got the right to say what I want to say. Well, listen. Of course, in the United States of America, you have the right to say whatever you want. I'm not going to argue that point. But I'm not talking about your identity as an American. I'm talking about your identity as a follower of Jesus. If he is Lord over your life, you have zero free speech. So shut up about it. He is Lord over everything. That means he is Lord over your tongue. And when it comes to this issue and what King Jesus expects out of us, be careful how you exercise that speech. I'll be right there with you if the government tries to do anything to you. No, they have no right to do that. That's not the point. The point is what does your Lord expect of you? How would they identify you? When we act and react no differently than the world expects, when our family squabbles are just as dysfunctional and ongoing as they are among unredeemed family units, and when our response to church division is either fight or flight, either line up on opposite sides in a business session or go find some other church, when our approach to the community and the nation we're living in right now and called to serve models the same dog-eat-dog approach to conflict that both political parties are pushing right now, where will people actually see Jesus where will they see him here's another question put more positively when we begin with Jesus and obey him by following him into conflict in a way that brings reconciliation what will the response be how will we be identified then the world talks a lot about justice these days doesn't it but the justice the world speaks of, and I don't mean it can be justice that's talked about on the left, justice is talked about on the right, but when non-Christians talk about justice, be careful. Be very careful not to assume that it's right simply because it agrees with your particular cultural or political tribe because what all of them are talking about is justice with no reconciliation. There's another word for that, hell. That's what hell is. It is the justice of God with no reconciliation. Jesus came so the world could escape that fate by bringing justice with reconciliation. With reconciliation. When we act in that way, the world is going to look at you, they're going to look at me, 
And they're going to say, blessed are those sons of God, daughters of God. I've gotten a lot of questions over the last few weeks about why I say certain things and why I don't say certain things. We're a diverse congregation, in case you didn't know. We're ethnically diverse. We are politically diverse. I know that may make some of you mad, but there are people in here whose vote canceled yours out. So the net political power differential of covenant is probably close to zero. You're welcome. That, that, that's where we, we are. I've had people on the left tell me I should endorse Joe Biden. I've had people on the right tell me I should, I should talk more about how Christians really ought to vote for and not even really mention his name, but sort of with a wink and a nod. Tell me, you really ought to vote for President Trump. That's really what you ought to do. And what I've said to both groups repeatedly, and you, if you want something different, you're going to have to find another pastor, is that I don't take the Lord's name in vain. I'm not going to do it by associating pure holiness with either one of these platforms. Not going to do it. So, well, what do you believe? We've kind of gotten into that category. I I don't know about you. I can remember a time when people didn't talk about who they voted for. They certainly didn't wrap their whole identity around who they voted for. I can remember that time. And for those of you who maybe are a little intimidated by that environment, let me, let me just assure you, if someone asks you who you voted for, it is completely acceptable to say none of your business. Completely. Why don't I talk about more of what I believe? Because it's irrelevant. That's why. It's irrelevant. I have opinions about how I think civil society should best move forward. I I voted. I stood in those long lines with the rest of you. I did that. I played my part as best I could. I, I did everything I could with the wisdom of God and hopefully the, in, the, the informing power of the Holy Spirit to, to cast votes in a way that, that might contribute toward the betterment of my neighbors. I think that's what Christian views of politics really are at the end of the day. It's the civil, civil society way to love your neighbor, and I try to do that as best I can. But at the end of the day, my personal beliefs on that are completely irrelevant Picking a side between people in this church is completely irrelevant because my task, it's exactly the same as yours. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know what it means? It means my job is not to arbitrate between you. It is to push you together because the Lord Jesus called you to be one body. He called you to be one body. Blessed are those who are the peacemakers. The conventional worldly wisdom will tell you we're too divided. We can't unify. There's no way. We're we're past the point of no return. It's not. I don't believe it. Not for a second. Because blessed are those who fight for the wholeness and completeness of the lives of other people. They shall be known as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Lord Jesus, not everything you tell us to do is easy. And I know that in a moment like this, a message like this is the last thing in the world that any of us wants to hear. Some of us because we'd just rather fight. Some of us because we'd rather avoid. Some of us because we're just tired. It's been a hard year. But Lord, with all the multitude of reasons why we may not I mean, we may be tempted to to not want to hear your word today. Lord, your word says what it says, 
It is firmly established in the heavens, give us, given to us in words that are not difficult to understand. And our task in this moment is to simply obey. So, Father, guide us away from conflict avoidance, from mushy middle, from go along to get along, and from fighting simply to win an argument and drive us together as a singular body in Christ. Lord, may we emulate those first disciples. That Even that small group of 12, Lord, who consisted of tax collectors whose job it was to prop up the bureaucracy and zealots whose political vision was to burn that bureaucracy to the ground. Two different men on the same team serving a larger kingdom. And Lord, this kingdom will be better for it. And Father, for that matter, our family units will be better for it. Our own inner peace will be better for it if we will simply take the hard road of seeing what is, knowing what you want to be the case, and playing our role to run toward the fire, toward the conflict, and close the gap. And I make this prayer in the name of the one who made peace, the name of the one who is the very reason why you love us and do not hate us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.